some of you um, may not know uh, Peter, so uh, let's just sort of try and get to know him before he sort of That's tries to sort of um, go through some big questions, which um, hopefully uh, some of you have got uh, written down. Now, before we sort of interview, before I interview Peter, there's, there's um, cards on your table. Write down some answers. All right, pass them to Alison, or let pass them to me, and I will try and ask Peter the question. If it gets too many, we'll just do a hands up. Is that okay? And then we'll have to be bold and brave and just try and answer, ask the questions ourselves. Okay. Well, Peter, thank you very much for coming along. Um, it's really, really privileged to have you here over the weekend. Um, why don't you just tell us uh, something about yourself and sort of, obviously, these guys are students. Um, I'm oh. led to believe that um, you've gone to three universities, so why don't you just let us know what three universities these are and okay. which one's your favourite. Okay, this is a set-up question, see, because I started out my university career here at Cardiff um, way back in the <clears throat> early 1990s. Uh, I then went to Sheffield University for a year and then I went to the University of East Anglia in Norwich uh, for two years. Uh, so I, of course, have to say that Cardiff was my favourite university. Brilliant. <laughs> Perfect start for your interview then. Um, OK, so um, what, what are you doing now? What, mm. what sort of uh, work are you doing and, and what's the organisation you're part of? Sure. Well, I'm now, um, officially, my title is Philosopher in Residence at the Damaris Trust. The Damaris Trust are a Christian educational charity who do uh, a load of different things, too complicated to briefly describe here. But what I mainly do with Damaris Trust is philosophy and ethics conferences with A-level students uh, around uh, the country in different schools. And I'll take the whole year group for a morning and a hall like this, and we'll sort of go through uh, issues uh, to do with big questions like, do you believe in God? And uh, what do you think about moral responsibility? And how does that fit with different worldviews and so on? And I, we do sort of plenary stuff and then uh, group work and presentations from students. And so I sort of and bust into schools to be part of the, the general sort of philosophy and ethics stroke RE kind of curriculum. Um, that's what I do with Damaris Trust. Great. So apart, apart from doing that kind of work, you've, you've written a few books. A few? Can you just give us yeah. um, some of the sort of, you know, headings of the... Headline, headline titles of some of my books? Okay, yeah, okay, what my expertise? Uh, I wrote a book called The Case for God, a book called The Case for Angels. Uh, I wrote a book called A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism. I was co-author of a book called Back in Time, A Thinking Fan's Guide to Doctor Who. I've just got a contract with DLT to, again, with some co-authors, write a new book on Doctor Who. You might tell I'm a bit of a fan. Um, I uh, have my most recent book that's out. Uh, we still have a couple of copies left at bargain knockdown basement prices. Uh, it's called Understanding Jesus. Um, next year, I'm coming out with a book called uh, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. Uh, a, a Christian philosophy textbook called A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, and um, then this new Doctor Who book will be in the pipeline. Yeah. Amazing. So it sounds like you've written more books than they've read, so that's fantastic. So you're the right person to come here and, and ask questions too. So some of the guys here have got some big questions, mm -hmm. but one of the questions I've been handed is this one. So let's just start off with that one, okay. and then we'll see how the evening goes in. Okay. So the ball rolling. Okay, so first of all, isn't faith just a blind leap? in the dark. Well, this is an excellent opportunity uh, to debunk uh, the very good advertising job that new atheist writers like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and so on have done on this area. They have done a good job of putting across in the public the viewpoint that faith 
means blind faith. It's a blind leap in the dark kind of a thing. And on the one hand, I would want to say, of course there are religious people and of course there are Christians who do have a blind faith, who don't sufficiently think about what they believe. But it is certainly not what faith automatically means and it's certainly not what the the historic Christian tradition all the way back from Jesus on through the apostles, the early church fathers and so on have understood faith to mean. Um, One way of making this point is just to go back to the language actually used in the Bible where we're translating it as faith. Um, uh, In Greek it's uh, pistuon or pistis from which uh, we get the uh, long philosophical term epistemology which is the theory of knowledge pistis is in there and it, it's just a word that could be translated equally as belief or to be convinced the same word and we, we depending on the contact, uh, context um, translate that as faith um, so faith is believing something that you're convinced in uh, you could say it's a, actually a, a matter of putting your trust in something that you think you've got good reasons to trust. Uh, so there is absolutely no dichotomy, uh, so far as the Christian tradition at least is concerned, between faith and reason. It's not a, a choice of either or one or the other, but rather both work together. Um, you can have a reasonable, warranted trust in the Christian message. Um, so, yeah, do not separate faith and reason. Uh, it's a bad thing to do. <laughs> okay. So is there any sort of um, questions on the back of, that, of, of what just Peter said there? Any comebacks on that? I should probably mention I'm, I'm, I've got a podcast channel which you can track down through the Damaris Trust website or iTunes if you just go to podcasts and put Peter S. Williams. I am recording all the events this weekend for that, so part of the reason of taking questions in by paper is because not everybody necessarily wants you know, their <laughs> question to be overheard and broadcast in podcasts, but if you're happy to uh, broadcast your voice... Uh, I'll take subsidiary questions from you orally, but that's why we have this system of doing paper as well, so you can do it uh, non-orally, and you can do it anonymously if you want to do it that way. So whatever way you want to run it, whatever you're comfortable with, um, that's how we will deal with it. Before we, uh, before we go into the cut, um, is there any sort of... Uh, really, just sort of um, and just ask a question, just sort of something which you really want to uh, know the answer to. Yeah, cool. Um, nice to know. I've discussed a lot with um, atheist friends. Hmm. How would you... The notion, it's the notion of having a morality outside of God. Yeah. How would you kind of debunk the notion of having a morality that isn't based on, on God? Okay. What's the, what's the sort of relationship, as far as I'm concerned, between morality and God... Yeah. Uh, can you be good without believing in God, etc., etc.? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, just to I try and clarify, make sure I get the question. Well, I think there is a relationship between God and morality, but the relationship is not that you have to believe in God in order to be good. It's not that you have to believe in God in order to be able to tell the difference between right and wrong. Indeed, in the Bible itself, St. Paul writes about uh, the Gentiles who don't have the law uh, from God, nevertheless show that they have the law of God written on their hearts, when in their behaviour their consciences sometimes justify them and sometimes condemn them. So the Bible itself says, you don't need to believe in God 
in order to know the difference between right and wrong or to do the right thing. Um, I would make here, yeah, philosophers love distinctions, as you'll find out, a distinction between the, the question of how we know or do the right thing, a sort of epistemological question, from what you might call the ontological question, the question about being, what kind of thing are moral values? What worldview best explains the existence of objective moral values, should you think such things exist? Um, and on that question, that's where I see the link uh, between uh, God and explaining the existence of such a thing as there being the right thing to do. That's not just a matter of personal, subjective, or cultural preference. Um, I think moral disagreements are not disagreements that are a matter of taste or personal choice. It's not like, you know, I prefer ordering strawberry ice cream and you prefer ordering vanilla ice cream. I think it's much more like, um, is it true that the earth goes around the sun or is it the other way around? Um, when we have a difference of opinion about that kind of issue, one of us is wrong and one of us is right. You know, if I say torturing small children for fun is wrong, well, and someone else, if they were to say, no, 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 that's fine, I think torturing small children for fun is great fun. Um, well, I think one of us is right and one of us is wrong. And actually, I think it's me that's right and them that's wrong. Um, this is a matter of fact, just as much as the fact that the earth goes around the sun and not the other way round. Uh, how do you explain the existence of objective moral values that don't depend on us? They transcend us, they transcend our cultures. We can be wrong, our cultures can be wrong in moral matters, we make moral mistakes. There's a fact of the matter, to get right or not. But moral, morals are also things that, that command us how we should behave rather than just describing how we do, and that we're obligated to follow. And yet you can't have a command without a commander or an obligation without someone to be obligated to. And yet these moral values transcend me or you or us. So I think the best explanation for that kind of moral fact is that there is a transcendent, good, personal moral commander and obligator beginning to sound a lot like God so that, that's a way of laying out what's called the moral argument for God and it's there that I would see the connection but it, it is a, a, a misrepresentation of the Christian view of the relationship between God and morality to say Christians are saying you've got to believe in God before you can know that torturing small children for fun is wrong or, or anything like this does that get sufficiently to the Number of what you were wanting to ask. Yeah, I, I mean, yes, I think the notion, I've, I've just read that, like, a lot and tried to explain to people how that notion of objective morals points to God. Mm. But then uh, just defending that in terms of how we know that that's true, how we know that without God, morals don't make any sense is. Slightly harder. People don't yeah, yeah. Um, there's, a quite a, there's quite a growing literature on this argument for morality at the moment, actually. I was looking at the forth, forthcoming books in philosophy on Amazon, as I do occasionally, and thinking there's quite a few books coming up being published on the moral argument. But I was very influenced in, in this area by reading um, work by people like H.P. Owen on the moral argument. It's very good. 
or um, find online people like William Lane Craig do quite a good job of laying out the moral argument. Um, in terms of defending the idea that there really are objective moral facts in the world, I quite like pointing people to a book by an atheist philosopher called Russ Schaefer-Landau called Whatever Happened to Good, or Evil, Good and Evil. And there he's an atheist philosopher and he does a really good job, I think, of arguing that it's the most plausible position to take about morality is that there are objective moral facts. Now, of course, he's an atheist, so he thinks there's no linkage to be made between those moral facts existing and God existing. He would object to that move, but he fully supports the idea that there really are objective moral facts. And, of course, there are some atheist philosophers who think there are and some atheist philosophers who think there aren't. Um, but uh, I like referring people to atheists where I agree with them uh, to make the case for at least step one of that kind of argument. Great. Thanks very much. Okay, so we've got, um, we've got a couple of questions. Uh, I'll go for one mm. at a time. Um, isn't there a contradiction between the loving character of Jesus and the wrath of God? His wrath at times seems unjust. Shall we do that again? Yeah, I do. Whilst I have a little ponder. Okay. The question is, isn't there a contradiction between the loving character of Jesus mm. and the wrath of God? Okay. It's a great sort of Old Testament kind of phrase, isn't it? the wrath of, of God. I don't think there is a contradiction. I, I think, actually, you can see that, that both kind of ways of behaving towards reality on, on God's part, on Jesus' part actually flow out of the nature of love. Um, that love uh, endorses what is good. Uh, that love wants what is the best for the beloved. And therefore, anything that is not the best for the beloved, anything that harms the beloved, is something that love will hate because of its love for that which is being harmed by the bad, um, including sin. Um, and we, we, you know, we use this phrase so much that it becomes almost trite, but I think you know, there's a great wisdom in it in, in talking about the difference between loving the sinner but hating the sin God does not hate sinners and according to Christianity everyone is a sinner according to Christianity God loves everyone Jesus loves everyone um, God so loved the world that he sent his only son etc etc what God hates is sin why does God hate sin well, because he is the embodiment of goodness, as we were talking about in the moral argument, and he loves us, and we uh, are made in his image for relationship with him and so on, and sin is something that mars and defaces uh, that image of God in us, that separates us from the true kind of flourishing life we're meant to have in relationship with him. So, because he loves us, of course he will hate sin. Um, so I think once you understand the nature of God's loving moral perfection, 
you will see that that must necessarily mean that he hates sin. But that does not mean that he hates sinners. He loves sinners. <laughs> but he hates sin. That's okay. Any, any comebacks on that at all? So what you're saying is that God is um, hating sin and the fact that mm. Jesus has come shows us yeah. the true character of God. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. John? Oh, sorry. Hi. It's just like in the Bible sometimes you see some people like struck down with death because of their sin. Um, that would suggest that God isn't giving them another chance and that he's actually attacking the person for the entire world just like sin. Yeah. Um, particularly certain Old Testament Stories, or you might sort of mention the uh, Israelite invasion into the Canaanite lands and, and so on and so forth. I think um, there's a lot that could be said about the importance of reading some of those Old Testament stories against the, the culture and the literary standards and so on of the time, uh, which we probably don't have time to go into. But I, one part of what you said, I think it, it's very dangerous to make an extrapolation from um, what happens to people in this world in terms of there being some sort of this worldly comeuppance for them and extrapolating from that to what their eternal destiny is. Um, because uh, judgment, according to the Bible, is, is that point at the, at, at the end of this structure of the universe... Uh, when God um, is about to recreate the universe into the new heavens and the new earth, which he will not be infected by sin. He wants people to be there, but he's not going to force them against their will to be there. It's got to be a matter matter of of freely accepting the gift of salvation, uh, not forcing people but at the, at the judgment, I, I think all that we can say, given what we know of God's character, is God's judgment, of course, will be just. Um, it will be loving. It will be loving sinners but hating sin. It will not be forcing himself upon people. It will be desiring that everyone is saved. It says in the Bible, God desires that everyone be saved. Um, but it, it does indicate that not everyone will. And you think of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, talking about the prophets who came time and time again to God's people. And he, and he, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, how, how many times I longed to gather you to me like a, a mother hen gathering her chicks to herself. But you would not. But you would not. Um, and I think that is our kind of clearest insight to, to God's um, heart for dealing with people. Uh, and you can't necessarily extrapolate from saying because God needed the nation of Israelite to um, depossess the Canaanites of the land and that involved uh, some battles in which they killed some Canaanites therefore they're damned to hell for eternity kind of. um, I don't think that follows um, maybe it follows that some of those Canaanites will be very pleasantly surprised to bump into in heaven because <laughs> at the judgment, actually, when they gained to a position where they did know enough about God, they may have said yes to him. Um, so I wouldn't automatically go from what happens here to what happens there. Um, I think um, uh, there's a philosopher called Jerry Walls who's written a couple of books called um, Heaven 
the logic of eternal joy and a book on hell and now a book on the concept of purgatory as well, interestingly enough. Um, But he talks about God's maximal grace, people, that God will give everybody every opportunity to be saved. But that doesn't support universalism, the idea that everyone will be saved, but God wants everyone and will give everyone every opportunity to. Um, Well, I, I would say the same. Yeah, come back. Mm. So there is this idea that there are some people that would suggest that there are some people that have been created um, that are saved and some created yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the kind of Calvinistic doctrine of double predestination that there are some people who are created to be saved and some people who are created to be damned. Um, I would reject the Calvinistic doctrine of double predestination. I'm not a Calvinist. Um, <laughs> that's my way of handling that. Um, Calvinists might give you a different answer. Um, this is one of those areas in theology where Christians do disagree uh, in their theological understanding. But I'm not a Calvinist. I'm what would be called an Armenian after the theologian Arminius, um, who put more emphasis on uh, people's free will to respond or not to respond to God uh, and interprets the passages about being predestined in Christ and so on with the emphasis on the in Christ and points out that it's our choice whether or not we allow ourselves to be put in Christ to receive the gift of of salvation or not. But in Christ, our, our preset destination is the new heavens and the new earth, the body of Christ and salvation, etc. Um, but whether or not you're in Christ is not something that God decides for you. It's what, something he wants for you but allows you to choose. That's the basic kind of outline. So there are, there are a couple of different Christian positions on that one and that's the one I fall into and you may or may not agree. What we'll try and do is, is give you a little bit of space afterwards as well if you want to sort of mm. pick up anything sort of one-to-one. Sure. Um, we may have gotten on the queue, but, you know, please <laughs> keep those questions. Let me tell you. Good, eh? Um, so what we've got is uh, we're, going to, we're going to heaven now. And how did the fallen angel fall from heaven if it's a place without sin? Oh, wonderful question. Yes. Uh, this brings me back to my book, uh, The Case for Angels, in which I look at um, <coughs> angels and demons and the philosophy of, of angels and demons, what's called angelology and demonology. Um, and I, I worked out that um, uh, an atheist invited me to have a debate on his website on an issue, and he suggested the issue of whether it's reasonable to believe in angels and demons in the then it was the 20th century Um, and I started doing research for that and realised that um, Catholics still wrote a lot about it but Protestants hardly ever did apart from to collect books of of people's claims to have met angels in certain situations or or demons but there wasn't any sort of philosophical thinking going on particularly within the Protestant tradition Um, the best stuff I could find was a, a book by a Catholic philosopher called Peter Kreft called Angels and Demons and by an agnostic philosopher called Mortimer J. Adler uh, called The Angels and Us. So I thought, well, it's about time a Protestant wrote a book on the philosophy of angels and demons. So, fantastic. Um, The answer that I would give would stem from uh, the medieval theologian and philosopher Thomas Aquinas, uh, who was a very influential uh, theologian and philosopher within Christian history. 
And uh, he um, and many others have suggested that uh, we think of it like this, that God created uh, these finite, purely spiritual, unembodied persons and gave them a period in which to choose whether or not to serve him, just as we embodied spiritual beings have this world uh, up till uh, the judgment uh, to choose for or against serving God. But just as in the future we will have made our choices, so the, the finite spiritual beings that God created have already had their time of making a choice, and that now um, they are set in their ways, as it were, be it angelical or demonical. So it's not that God uh, created angels and created demons, and it's not exactly that God created angels as we understand them now, and then some of those uh, morally perfect beings somehow fell into sin, but that he created spiritual persons who got a period of choosing whether or not to serve him, um, and that now those who chose to serve him are the angels, and those who chose to rebel against him are the demons. Um, so that's, that's a quite a, a, a traditional way of answering that question, because it, it does seem hard to kind of say, well, what would tempt a being that's morally perfect, like we think of angels as being now, to sin? How do you kind of bridge that gap and it's a, a naughty one to deal with and I think this idea of, a, of what's called the probationary period uh, and drawing a parallel with the way in which God creates people with a probationary period to give us a choice to choose whether or not to serve and relate to him um, ties it up in the most satisfactory way that you can um, but that's an area where you're giving an answer based upon sort of philosophical speculation rather than being able to sort of proof text it from a Bible verse. It's not something that the Bible really goes into. Um, so there we're left with trying to think it through as best we can ourselves. <coughs> yes. So why can't God then destroy the devil? Uh, indeed he can and, and the demons will. Um, in, the, in the large judgment, in, in Revelation, it talks about uh, Satan and the, and the demons being thrown into the pit, uh, the second death and so on, and, and the destruction of... We, we have this kind of, um, in Western popular culture, this sort of idea that sort of hell is the Christian equivalent of Hades from the ancient Greeks, uh, in which uh, one of the uh, ancient Greek gods uh, took as his... Uh, realm, the realm of the dead, and sort of that Satan is the sort of uh, Christian equivalent, and that that Satan is kind of the king of hell and he's ruling over hell. Um, it's not that at all within the Christian tradition in the Bible. Actually, hell is the destination of Satan and his his fallen angels. Uh, that God will will expunge <coughs> them from reality in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, well, that's a fascinating question as well, isn't it? Does hell exist at the moment? Um, or is it something that is created at the last judgment? When there is the, 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 Satan and his angels are thrown into hell and there's division of, 
of people, those who choose to serve God, those who going, the Revelation talks about the separation of the, the sheep and the goats, uh, and some go to heaven and, and some are thrown into hell, however you interpret that. Um, so yeah, I think you, 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 you could say, in that sense, that hell doesn't exist yet, just as the new heavens and the new earth don't exist yet. We use the term heaven in a very um, uh, non-univocal sense. We, we talk about heaven as the, the sort of heaven is God and his angels and the transcendent spiritual realities. We talk about that's heaven. Um, in the biblical language, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. That just means the same thing as we would mean by saying God created the universe, the cosmos. That's not actually, in the original language, making a distinction between the, the natural realm and the supernatural realm. It's just saying God created everything. Um, and then the Bible talks about the day when God will recreate the universe, just after the pattern of Christ, who when he died is resurrected and has a resurrection body, uh, a new way of being a physically embodied person, still physically embodied, but he's, he's, he's not just come back to life again like Lazarus, coming out of the grave with his grave closed still like in the mummy kind of movie. Um, he is raised to a glorious spiritual body and that is our first kind of sample of the new heavens and the new earth um, so there are again there are some sort of ideas in the bible that don't quite filter through the sort of Hollywood way of portraying what, what Christianity typically believes Yeah, why doesn't he just destroy them now? Well, I think it was possibly Richard Swinburne who gives this answer that um, in that probationary period, because then after that the, the, the angels are going to continue in existence in serving God in his interaction with this probationary period for us, as it were, um, that the significance of the choice made by those beings, whether or not to serve God, is, uh, is given its significance by the fact that they can choose to rebel against him and, and, and fight against him, but only for a limited period. But if they, they, if they don't have an actual opportunity to be in rebellion against God, then what is the significance of their choice? Thinking, am I going to serve God or or not? And again, you you don't necessarily think of this probationary period as a sort of long history of its own before the creation of the universe in which there's a sort of whole world uh, before. Um, Angels maybe don't make choices in in quite that kind of way. It's it's a more sort of, okay, who, who are you going to choose? kind of thing, um, given their nature. Um, that's the most plausible spe- speculation, I think. In, in the end, I say, all I have on that one is a speculation, and I don't really know. <laughs> um, is that a problem, that I don't really know? Would I expect to know what the reason is? I don't know. <laughs> yes, sir, you've had your hand up a couple of times at the back. Doesn't that 
Yeah, because this, this idea is they weren't beings that created in an initial state of moral perfection, but created in a state in a state where they would have the libertarian free will to choose for or against God. But that having chosen for or against, they are then so the angel the the finite beings who chose for God, who are now what we call angels, are as it were like we would be in the new heavens and the new earth um, where we have been so transformed in Christ that we no longer have any sin in us now I would say that won't mean that we won't have any free will in heaven it'll mean that we have a different kind of free will we'll have the freedom to make choices between things that are good but we won't have the freedom to choose things that are bad as we do at the moment and I think that's linked to our ability to choose whether or not to have a relationship with God because God is the ultimate good and the worst thing that there can possibly be, therefore, is to choose to, to not relate to him, your maker, to not fulfil his purposes for you because they are by definition good and so on. So in heaven we will be sinless, but that won't mean that we're sort of robotic automata. Um, any more than, than saying, look, think about God himself. Okay? Has, has God got, got any... Is he morally perfect or does God have any sin in him? You know? Does God have any freedom of will? Did he create the universe by choice? So on. Yes, God is perfect, but he has freedom of will, but only freedom to do things that are good. Or, um, well, let me introduce a technical term here. Moral philosophers will distinguish between things that are... Um, uh, obligatory or prescribed, morally speaking. So it is prescribed, I ought not to morally torture, uh, torture small children for fun. Okay? To use that classic example. Um, there are certain things that I am morally obligated to do that I would be prescribed not to do. So uh, it is morally obligatory that I worship the Lord my God with all of my heart, mind, and strength. It's the first commandment. Um, but there are other things that are what's called super, supererogatory. That is, they're things that it would be good to do, but that I'm not obligated to do. It would be good if I decided this evening to send £100 to Tear Fund. That would be a good thing to do. Am I obligated to send £100 to Tear Fund? Am I sinning if I don't send Tear Fund £100 tonight? Of course not. <laughs> So I have, I have the choice whether or not to send tier fund £100 tonight. And if I do, that's a good thing. And if I don't, it's not that I've sinned. I mean, what if I sent £100 to um, the Red Cross instead? You know, it's a good thing to choose to be a lawyer. It's a good thing to choose to be a firefighter. It's a good thing to choose to be a doctor. Um, you can't be all of them. <laughs> so you're not obligated to be... <laughs> To do those things. So, making those kind of moral distinctions, in heaven we will not have sin in us, but we'll have the moral freedom 
to do things that are good and to choose between things that are good and to do things that are supererogatory or not. Um, but we won't have the, the freedom to do evil. And actually, in line with thinking about God's character, that is really... Actually, it's a kind of odd kind of thing to call freedom. The freedom not to succeed in being the kind of thing that you're meant to be. I think it's needed in order to give us a a choice of relationship with God or not. But it's a really kind of odd thing. Because actually, like God, God is the most free being possible. Because he he is not tempted to be less than he should be. It can't fail to be less than he, than he should be. He has the freedom to be good always. And we will have the freedom to be good always, the power to be good always. Um, and, you know, I'm really looking forward to that. It's really annoying being sinful. <laughs> and just, like, we just stop there on that question because there's, there's so many to get through. Okay. Uh, but I'll try and um, give shorter answers now, so I'm <laughs> rambling a bit too much. Uh, if, if you do want to follow up, please, please follow up afterwards. Mm. But in that sort of um, thinking about uh, heaven, thinking about God, thinking mm. about the devil, uh, sort of thoughts go to uh, Job. And it's a great question. Really. Mm. Does a God that can take someone's life and tear it to pieces to prove a point, i.e., Job? Mm. Sadistic, even perverse. How can I advocate worshipping this God? Mm. Well, first of all, I would say that the the book of Job is not a historical story. It's a literary work of wisdom literature. um, And it's not in the genre of history. So it's not claiming that those events actually happened to anyone. (laughs) Uh, That would be a good place to start with that one, I think. It's, it's a book raising very deep and profound issues about how humans cope with suffering and criticising a pervasive theological assumption in that culture about the relationship between um, having faith in God and being blessed or cursed in this life. Particularly because it's one of the oldest books in the Old Testament, some people have said, and you'll notice in the Old Testament, they didn't really have much of an idea of the afterlife. Uh, you read various passages between Ecclesiastes and, and so on. They, they don't, of course, have the fully worked out Christian idea of an afterlife, let alone the later Jewish idea of the, the general resurrection of the dead uh, and the world to come. So because of this lack of an idea of an afterlife, people tended to look at... Well, okay, well, what's the benefit of, of having faith in this God or that God in this world? Surely, in order to be just, it would, it would mean that if I'm faithful to God, he'll bless me in this world. And so, um, if someone is blessed and they've got you know, lots of kids and lots of flocks and they're wealthy and well-respected, that must be because God, because God likes them. <coughs> because if God, li- if God likes them, they'll be blessed in this world. And the thing with Job is that it sets up the beginning for the reader of the idea that we know that Job hasn't sinned. That, that the reason he's suffering is not to do with the fact that God is, is punishing him because of his sin. And it is rejecting the idea that there is this automatic linkage between 
uh, being blessed in this world and believing in God and, and, and vice versa and so on. Um, so it's part of the Jews moving away from this kind of very this worldly focused way of, of looking at our relationship with God and beginning to get a, a more long term transcendent idea opening up the space for that growth in the, in the Jewish conception of how we relate to God and that maybe God's justice isn't all to do with what happens here and now but that there's room for more, uh, more context uh, for that relationship. So that just starts giving a, a couple of avenues of answer for that and I won't go on anymore because we've got lots of questions. But um, yeah. Okay, before we do move on, any, any sort of um, questions that come back, if there are, mm. just raise your voices because they're good questions, but for me at the front, I can hear them. So just um, anyone want to come back? Yeah, please. Okay, how do we know? This is to do with judgments about literary form and styles of literature and sort of literary analysis and so on. Um, but just um, to work through the issue, I, I would say just get any good commentary on the book of Job. I'm reading at the moment a commentary on the book of, of Job by a guy called Tremper Longman, um, which uh, I think is quite a good commentary uh, on it. Um, you might find it in a theological library if you don't want to bother spending out the money on it. But this is the kind of issue in looking at how we understand biblical texts that theologians spend their professional careers looking at and making judgments about and having arguments about what's the literary form of this, that and the other, what kind of category of literature is it and so on. Understanding against the cultural background of that society at the time what kinds of literature they wrote and what, what signs and indications they are that this or that document falls into this or that genre the way in which Job uh, interspaces uh, prose and poetry, the way in which it's very poetic uh, in, in lots of its uh, content, rather than being a very prose uh, description, like looking at something like the Book of Kings, or something which is clearly historical kind of accounts of things. Um, it's that kind of, of, of indication, but it's a sort of it's a literary criticism kind of question um, to go into. Yeah. You said the point was that God was trying to punish Um so what, what was the point? Yeah, well, there's this, there's this first section in the book of Job which is about this question of, it's sort of raising this question of do we try and have good relations with God for um, pragmatic um, reasons because we think we have this idea if I relate properly to God I'll be blessed in this life do we love God we say, oh God you're so wonderful etc in order just to get the fringe benefits and so there's this debate in the, in the, portrayed in the heavenly court uh, using Job as this trope of humanity saying is it that humanity just loves God because they're toadying up to you for the fringe benefits or actually do they love you because of who you are should we love God because of who he is just because he's God because he's the greatest possible being etc and so there's this story of well let's see what, ha- what happens when you take away the benefits that people think we should get in this life what do you do when you suffer and you have this view that automatically, if I'm in a good relationship with God, I must be being blessed here and now? And then something goes wrong in your life and you think, oh, no, God hates me now. 
Um, and it's, it's saying, no, that's not the case. But it's also dealing with this issue of, well, why do you love God? Are you saying you love God just so you'll get more sheep? You're kind of having a mercenary attitude towards religion. Um, or are you thinking about loving God because of who God is? And that's the issue that's played out in the first section of the, the book of Job. That's the theological discussion that's been had through that, that story. So something about God punishing the devil? Um, how do you figure out what all our suffering is God's punishment mm-hmm. and then the devil's work? Right, okay. How do we figure out whether our, our suffering here is God's punishment because, or, or if it's the devil's work or where our suffering comes from? Sometimes it can be very tricky. Sometimes we are, we are left without answers to that kind of question. Just as Job and his discussion group of friends, who aren't very helpful to him, are left without answers to why is Job suffering. And yet Job finds a kind of answer in the fact that he actually meets with God in his experience at the end of the book. And God doesn't give him the answer of why he's suffering but he does reveal himself to him. And part of that revelation of God to Job is that God, just as he knows and cares about every part of his creation, does know and care and love Job. And in meeting God, Job gets part of that answer. So uh, sometimes we just don't have those, those answers. There was a famous incident in the Gospels where um, a, a tower block um, that's kind of modern concept to us. They haven't had quite tall buildings at the time. There was this famous tower block that collapsed. Probably hadn't been built to spec. Uh, people had cut corners. It collapsed on a load of people and killed them. And people came to Jesus and they asked him, um, what's, you know, what sin have these people committed that God punishes them so? That, that was their automatic assumption. They're still in this kind of Jobian frame of mind. And Jesus says, debunks that and says, no, this, this isn't God punishing these people but then he uses it as an, an analogy of the last judgment and says you know, but get right with God because who knows when you're going to go kind of stuff um, but Jesus himself wants to disabuse us of, of this notion that if we're suffering it must be because it's from God um, maybe, it, maybe it is because it's from the devil but sometimes it's hard to know sometimes it's pretty obvious um, maybe it's because we live in this natural world that has a structure to it and you think of things like, you know, the suffering caused by earthquakes. Okay, I think this is a really good example. Why do people suffer in earthquakes? Why do we have earthquakes? Those of you who know your geology will know that, that plate tectonics actually plays a crucial role in the recycling of the elements and so on within the planet that, are, that play an essential role in making this a habitable planet. If there weren't any plate tectonics, we wouldn't be here. Okay? So there are plate tectonics, and we can be here. Yay! But that means we're here with plate tectonics. Ooh. Um, so you kind of pays your money and it takes your choice in a situation like that, it seems to me. Um, I'm on, on balance rather glad to be here. Um, I think most people are. Um, we're... we're um we're going to go to a court bus now, okay? And I'll give you okay. over an hour to sort of um, grab Peter. 
Um, but um, on that theme of um, suffering, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of our sort of the consequences of the way that um, I live my life has caused some suffering to yeah. myself. But um, things like sort of mental illness, mm-hmm. where there may not have been um, any sort of consequences of something you, you've done. So mm-hmm. how does Christianity deal mm-hmm. with mental illness? Oh, gosh, that's a broad and deep question, isn't it? I, I think part of it that comes back to this same kind of thing with the plate tectonics and so on, we are part of this world that has a, a regular ordered structure that allows us to do science and to know about it and to live in it and, and so on. Um, it plays into our free will because if I'm going to have a choice about whether to benefit you or harm you, I have to, generally speaking, know that the world's going to work in an ordered way and that if I... If, if I sew up your wound, that means it's going to heal. So I know what to do in order to benefit you. And that if I club you over the head with a heavy anvil, it's going to do you harm, rather than the anvil turning into a bowl of petunias at the last moment. You know, if the world was chaotic and not orderly, it would be very difficult for us to exercise our free will as embodied beings. Um, so again, it's one of those sort of Hobbes choices, take your pick kind of thing. And, um, you know, we live in a world governed by the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is basically running down and getting worse and going to die in the heat death of the universe unless God steps in, as he will eventually. Um, so it is part of that downside of the present arrangement of the, of the universe... And I think the key question is, is going to basically come down to, do you think the pain is worth the gain? And if you say, no, I don't think the pain is worth the gain, maybe that's because you have an inadequate conception of what the gain is or can be. Uh, and maybe, actually, you would also think about the fact that if you say the pain is not worth the gain, what you're really saying is um, it would be much better for the universe as a whole for the total amount of value in reality if we just ended humanity here and now, you know, let's all commit mass suicide, because that would actually be for the good. And yet, something within us says, no, come on. (laughs) You know, at the end of Luc Besson's sci-fi film, The Fifth Element, uh, where the great evil has come to Earth and it's going to destroy us, and they get the the salvation machine working, and Mila Jovic is the fifth element, uh, is caused to work because Bruce Willis is wearing a T-shirt and loves her, uh, wearing a vest and loves her, um, and humanity is saved. You know, the whole audience go, oh, no, humanity was saved. Oh, what a terrible ending for the universe. It would, of course, been much better if, if Bruce Willis hadn't loved Mila Jovic and the universe had succumbed and... No, you know, uh, we do have this intuitive understanding that the, the pain is worth the gain, even if we can't understand all of the connections between why things are as they are now and how they, how they will be. Um, or we don't have a full grasp of the glory that will be revealed. As Paul talks about, I do not, I do not consider uh, this light and momentary suffering worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. Um, and when Paul is talking about light and momentary suffering, of course, this is Paul who has been shipwrecked, stoned several times, clubbed by the Roman authorities, um, in, in danger from brigands and pirates. And, you know, he was not someone living your yeah, yeah, easy, cosy, middle-class lifestyle. Um, 
But again, I know that only just begins picking at the issue for you. We've got, we've got one question left, I'm afraid, and, and I've got about four to choose from, so I'm really sorry if I haven't chosen your one. Come what on. I'll do is I'll give these to Alison, and then we'll sort of find a way of trying to sort of get you or point you in the right direction. Because as, as we just say in this interview, if you repeat that, mm. it's just sort of unpicking things. And so it, hopefully it'll spur you to uh, search further or uh, come and ask more questions, OK? So the final question um, for this evening... Um, is do people that have never heard of Christ make it to heaven? Mm. How do we justify a good person going to hell if they don't know Jesus? Okay, that's a very interestingly phrased question. I come back to this issue we started talking about, maximal grace, and the fact that God loves everyone and wants everyone to be saved. People don't fail to make it into heaven because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time and didn't find out about it and didn't get the letter. Okay, um, people don't make it into heaven because they don't want to know God, and God's not going to force them to do what they don't want to do. Um, now, in terms of extrapolating from that knowledge that the Bible tells us that God wants everyone to be saved, but isn't going to force Himself, and not everyone will be saved, you can only extrapolate in a number of directions in saying, well. How does God arrange to be fair and just towards everybody, including people who perhaps never in this, their lifetime in this world hear about Jesus and the gospel and so on? Um, is there sufficient uh, knowledge through natural revelation that they can know about God and know their own sinfulness and so on? Well, yes, maybe. But even uh, the Bible talks about the way in which the Old Testament patriarchs who had a relationship with God, rejoiced to see Jesus' day and that God's plan for all humanity, including people like Abraham from the Old Testament and so on, is to be in Christ in the new world order, in the new heavens and the new earth. So there must have been some stage uh, in which uh, Abraham um, came explicitly to know about Jesus and to become incorporated into the body of Christ, to be in Christ, in the biblical phrase. There's not going to be two sorts of people in heaven, you know, the Christians who are in Christ and the Old Testament patriarchs who, you know, were born a bit too early, poor them, but they still make it into heaven, you know. (laughs) So that suggests to me, again, on this, this idea that God gives everyone an opportunity to accept salvation and to know him. Um that it's perfectly plausible to speculate that if people don't get an opportunity to make that choice here and now, uh, don't get the full, um, uh, the full picture here and now, that God will somehow make sure that they do get the full picture before the last judgment. Um, but that is a, a speculative extrapolation from the biblical data rather than, again, something that I could proof text you. Uh, and this is an issue where there are a number of Christian views uh, on the issue, There's, uh, let me recommend a book to you if you want to really follow up this issue. I think a really good book on this is called um, uh, No Other Name by John Sanders, who goes through a number of different Christian traditional views on this very question, the biblical evidence, the, the church uh, fathers and theologians who've supported that particular tradition and gives the sort of plus points and the negative points. He gives his own view in, in the book 
but it's a really good survey that will let you understand how different Christians have grappled with that issue. What we can say for sure is God is love. He's told us God is love. He loves sinners. He wants us all to know him and go to heaven. He will be just by the very definition of the kind of being that he is. If we don't have a definite, certain, worked-out view of how he arranges to be just to everyone in that matter, um, well, again, okay, maybe we have to trust him on that one, given everything that we do know about him. Um, I was saying at the beginning about faith and reason and not separating them, but equally... We don't know everything here and now. We can't exhaustively answer all questions. Good grief, we don't exhaustively understand just the material universe. Um, Science has come a long way, but it knows it's still got a long way to go. If we don't understand the material universe exhaustively, we sure as heck don't understand the supernatural universe, or God, or the interaction between God and the material universe exhaustively. Uh, The question is, do we understand enough, do we know enough to have a justifiable trust in God on the basis of the things that we do know to trust him about the things that we don't know? And I think that's a good way of ending because that brings us full circle. So thank you for those questions. Some really good ones there. Fantastic. Okay, so um, there's a lot that you've gone through this morning. This morning. (laughs) through this evening so we've gone from sort of uh, God's character uh, faith looking at how the devil came to be in how that affects uh, relationships uh, with that through suffering um, and then sort of to even touched on election as well Mm. so it's a broad topic there it's absolutely fantastic Um, please keep them uh, coming Pete's going to sort of just stay for another sort of 15 minutes. So if you've got any sort of burning questions or want to follow up anything, then please uh, come and grab him. Um, we'll have some uh, drinks and stuff, uh, and you're free to do whatever you want to. But I just want to thank you very much for coming. But also let's uh, thank Pete as well. Thank you very much.